Good morning. We are delighted that you have decided to join us once again. We just are so blessed by your comments, by your emails, by your conversations with us. Or just an email away, you can uh, always send us your questions or your comments uh, to our email address here at Loma Linda. And if you've sent one before, you, you do realize that both Joey and I are religious about returning uh, those emails. We do so because we believe that Adventism is a global family, that even amidst a chaotic time, a time of turmoil, and maybe even a time of stress and division, the tent that is Adventist is always broad and wide enough for all of us. So whether you are here in the Loma Linda area or you're one of our viewers in the Pacific Northwest, by the way, thank you for that wonderful box, or if you're in Chicago, I'm still waiting on my pizza. Or if you're halfway around the world, talking to you in Kenya, we are just delighted that our tent is big enough for you. Now, we love the little gifts that you send to us. We are just delighted. We It shows just so much care and so much appreciation. But we couldn't be here without a help from a broad group of people that you always uh, miss because they're off camera. They're diligent, uh, they're faithful, they believe in this, and they're great conversation partners for both Joey and I. And I'm referring, of course, to our media team. Now, we're starting, at least in this space, a push uh, to ask uh, for you to consider helping us and supporting our media department. So you know what to do if you're finding um, the content that our church is putting out meaningful. Instead of sending Pastor Miguel or Pastor Joey another tie, though we appreciate them, as we always do, consider giving uh, to our media department. You can click on luc.org, hit give, and then consider media in your giving. Joey, what do you think about media? Oh, yeah. Media, the work they do is incredible because they're the ones who make us look good, right? Um, Sometimes that's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> Sometimes, always. No, nobody really pays attention to media unless something goes mm -hmm. wrong, right? That's when everybody, like in a worship service, everybody will look back or in a video, people will be like messaging and saying like, why is the sound not working? Nobody notices them unless something goes wrong. But for the ma vast majority of times, things go right and it's because they're working so hard. And so any way that we can support them, I think is so crucial. We couldn't do this ministry without media. So. We absolutely couldn't. And that's why throughout uh, the next couple of weeks in the quarter, and a brilliant idea just came into my mind. And that is we'd like to introduce some of our media people in front of the camera. So during our opening segment, we'll just ask them some questions so that you guys get to know the people behind the camera. Uh, that make all of this happen. I couldn't imagine working through COVID and creating all the ministries that we've that were created during that time without the support of our media crew. The problem is now we're in person, but all of the ministries that we created during COVID are still going. So um, we just want to give a shout out to our media team and ask you to partner with us in considering them as you faithfully give to our community. Yeah, that's a great idea. I think that's introduced the people behind the camera. That's that's great. I love it. Because those people behind the camera are the ones that really matter. And so I know you, uh, our media crew here is gasping for air because they're petrified at that proposition. <laughs> but hey, we just want to show how much we, we value uh, their contributions to our team. Yeah. Joey, let's pray as we jump into uh, this continuing study on this idea of mission. We're going to be living in Genesis 11 and 12. God, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for creating this broad tent called Christendom. But the tent even broadens more as we consider humankind. And the tent grows even broad, broader as we take into consideration creation. Because you're in the business of erecting broad tents. We thank you for that. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So the lesson talks about mission. And it gives a really interesting 
take on the Tower of Babel. Yeah. A take that comes from patriarchs and prophets, nonetheless, uh, which I found really interesting to think that um, the whole rebellion of, of Israel trying to attempting to create a tent was in some way utilized by God in order to have this purpose of having humanity spread out. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the strengths or the lack thereof theologically and textually of that proposition, but I think the premise still holds true regardless of what you think about uh, the exegetical strength, uh, strength of the argument, and that is that life experiences are a wonderful way to interact with people with whom perhaps we don't have that much in common. In other words, our missiology is experience-rich and needs to be experience-rich. It needs to be informed by the lives we've lived and, these, and the experiences we have had. So I think that's the premise that we all probably all will be able to agree with. I talked to some of my colleagues um, in, in Old Testament studies here at the, at the school, and they had some really interesting things uh, that we'll share about Genesis 11. Oh, I'm fascinated to hear what they say, because I did, I was, I was interested <laughs> in, in the way that it was approached. But yes, that premise is absolutely true. And it is also true that God leads us, often leads us out of our comfort mm -hmm. zones, right? That is a, absolutely true. We see that in in um, what he did with the the first Christians mm -hmm. as well, like challenging them to go out of, you know, start in Jerusalem, go to Samaria, mm -hmm. and then out to the larger world. Mm -hmm. This idea that our mission field needs to continue to expand beyond the borders of what we're comfortable mm -hmm. with. And I think that's a really important point because we often utilize our experiences to reinforce our tribe. There are certain markers that identify me as a member of whatever tribe I belong to. And I wear those proudly. Sometimes I'll, I'll put or I'll see bumper stickers in cars or I'll see a particular flag or a particular sign outside of a home. And just by looking at that, there's a lot of symbolism that goes into that, uh, that expression, that sign that is able to connect me with a whole range of ideas and a tribe and a people. And while I think it's it's really important for us to have a defined identity, I th sometimes believe that the flip side to that coin is that that identity sometimes becomes so entrenched that we cannot imagine the world experienced through any other lens, and that I think it really, really does damage to to the way we approach this this understanding of sharing our mission. So the premise that our missiology is experience oriented and that it needs to push us out of our comfort zone, which which is the main title of the lesson, I think holds true regardless of what you might think the text is actually about or not about. Yeah, it does seem to make us more well-rounded people, more uh, it increases our ability to empathize with people, mm -hmm. to understand them, and then thus more effectively contextualize the message mm -hmm. to other people when we are willing to explore areas beyond what we're comfortable mm -hmm. with. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's yeah. a powerful point. Yeah, well, let's, we talked about uh, the premises and what we agree. We're, we're going to talk about the text because after all, it it is grounded or our mission uh, beyond our experience and beyond our comfort zone needs to be grounded in a story, a narrative of God with us. And so I think it's interesting to, that we situate what is happening um, because Je uh, Genesis 11 is a watershed in the book. Mm. Something shifts uh, between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Now, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Gerhard von Rod, calls uh, Genesis 1 through 11 the primeval history. And the primeval history, at least according to von Rod, and I find uh, him to, to actually explain this better than anyone else in, within his broader scope of Heilsgeschichte. That's your big word for the week. It is history of salvation. That's the German way. Uh, and that's what von Rod thinks that the Old Testament is about. It's a history of salvation. Within that history of salvation, the premise that von Rod makes 
is that we need to define what we're being saved from. And the primeval history of, of Scripture is all about defining what we need to be saved from. And so if you look at kind of how uh, these 11 chapters in Genesis are divided, you see first it's Adam and Eve, then it's Cain. Uh, after Cain, you have uh, Von Rod calls uh, it the, the mythology of Genesis 6, uh, where the sons of God and the daughters of men engage in relationships that are pernicious. And then after uh, Genesis, you have obviously, you have the flood, and then you have the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. And so you have kind of this, uh, these, these issues uh, that keep creeping up. And Von Rad makes a really interesting point, and that is uh, that it moves, or sin as he understands it, this state of separation from God, moves uh, from the individual to this corporate and social reality. And that God's response is always this combination of mercy and, and justice. And that the ultimate response to, gen to the rebellion in uh, Genesis 11 is the call of Abraham. Mm -hmm. So Israel's primeval history needs to conclude, uh, the Bible's primeval history needs to conclude mm -hmm. in order for God then to, in to initiate his history of salvation, mm -hmm. which commences with Abraham and concludes, uh, if you are a Christian, uh, with the birth of, birth of Jesus. Wow, I love that. That is so powerful to think of that, that the first 11 chapters show us what we need to be saved from. But the history of the impact of sin. And really, when you when you think of it that way, you can kind of get a macro, I guess, a macro evolution mm -hmm. of sin, right? Because normally in our everyday lives, the impact of sin often moves pretty slowly. Mm -hmm. Like we'll do little things, little compromises that will grow over long periods of time. But what we get to see in Genesis um, really 3 through 11 is how sin creeps in and not only corrupts an, an entire person, but an entire society, mm -hmm. and how the, how destructive sin can be when allowed to run ra rampant. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's jump into the text and see what, what the problem is in 11 and how God's response, because what I find fascinating is that God's response is always, to sin is always mitigated by God's ultimate desire mm -hmm. for us. So Adam and Eve don't eat from the, from the tree, though you will surely die. And then they don't die. I mean, they die eventually. But the language, as you well know, says you will, the day you eat it, you will die. And something happens within within God's within God's own being that says, well, there there needs to be uh, a response to sin. But that response to sin is going to be mitigated by my care for you. Hmm. With Cain, Cain is. Uh, his relationship, right, with the earth is shifted, and that is truly painful, and he is condemned to wander. But then there's also this really mysterious relationship of protector and protectee that Yahweh and Cain have. Mm. The sons of men and the the sons of uh, the daughters of men and the and the sons of God engage in this relationship that ultimately uh, creates people. And creates a, a way, a modality of being where uh, your constant thinking is evil. And so God uh, sends the flood. But even amidst the flood, there's the recreation of uh, nature. There's, uh, there's, uh, there's Noah and his family. And then uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis 11, there's one people uh, directed and moving towards one object. And out of the one people God makes many, but out of the many God chooses one. And so you have Abraham. So it's a really interesting, I think, approach to mission as people ask these important questions about what God's character is. And as people ask you, who is this God that uh, that you are going to share? It's really important to, yes, extol the justice of God because God needs to respond to sin, but also uh, make clear that that response to justice to, to sin is always mitigated by God's unending and incondition, unconditional love for us. Wow. Wow. I'm excited. I'm excited to see 
um, what we learn as we dive into Genesis 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Come, uh, they said to one another, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tartar and tar for mortar. So here's the, the author is already telling you that this is going to fail. <laughs> and you have to read, I think you have to read scripture really carefully because in the mind of the author, brick and tar are utensils and artifacts and materials you use for building, but you're not going to build a big building with those because brick and tar, uh, are ultimately, they're ultimately perishable materials. Mm -hmm. And so I think from the very beginning, one says, well, why is the author giving us this insight into the actual instruments, the actual materials that uh, the people are using? And I think the whole point in Genesis 11 mm -hmm. is that too often our attempts at grandiosity are um, really, really really perishable. Mm. And I think that's an important thing to remember yeah. about who we are and how our our messages and our missions are viewed. Uh, I think of what Genesis 11 does really well is it reminds us of how, how difficult and how it, how perishable human beings are. And yet, and yet God, God still, for some reason, is intimately connected and intimately desiring uh, to have a relationship with us. Yeah. I mean, I love the attention you're giving to the materials because what, what came into mind as I was studying that, that section about this church, the description of the materials is that the contrast between this and the description of, for example, building the temple mm -hmm. where it's built with stones, right? Um, and it denotes this permanence, but not only permanence, the fact that these stones were uncut by man, mm -hmm. right? This, this, that imagery that this is a work of God, right? Versus the work of humanity, mm -hmm. like you're pointing out. And so the work of God are things that stand, but the work of humanity are the things that don't, right? Um, and that, that imagery runs throughout with, with humans baking, baking, um, brick for, uh, the Israelites are breaking, baking brick to make, to make, um, uh, pyramids, mm -hmm. right? Like this idea that these are things that man is doing, but ultimately it is the, it is God who stands. The, the stone that is uncut that comes out mm -hmm. and demolishes in the, in the book of Daniel, this, this statue, and then it stands forever. That imagery is in contrast with what humans are doing here. Mm -hmm. And this, even this phrase, come let us, you know, make bricks, right? is echoed in um, in what the Lord says. He mm. says, come, let us go down, right? So it's making a contrast again in this passage between what God does and what humans, mm. do, humans do. And it's humanity, and we've talked about this before, trying to usurp the mm -hmm. position of God. And like you were saying, ultimately being doomed to failure. And it's doomed to failure because we are too small. This is why I love the story. And this is one of the things that I think uh, we miss uh, a lot of times when, when the exegesis isn't careful and nuanced enough. So a lot of people, a lot of exegetes will say that the reason why uh, the people built a tower was because of the flood. They were afraid of the flood or they, um, and Isaiah kind of echoes this, they want to storm uh, the throne or the seat of God to become like God. But the language that is used in Genesis 11 seems to be uh, pretty clear that that's not what's going on. They want a name and they start building. And God's response isn't because they're getting close enough. God's response is that the work that they're doing is so minuscule mm. that God says, hey, 
Come, let us go down. The reason why God goes down mm-hmm. isn't because God is nearsighted. It's because their tower is too small. Yeah. And I think often yeah. when it comes to who we are, we need to really, really realize that our churches, our messages, our under, even our understandings of what Scripture is and how Scripture ought to be read and ought to be understood are really, really small when they are compared to the transcendence and the grandiosity that is God. And so I think Genesis 11, in its connection to missions, and I love that connection. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I'm going to make, I'm going to want to believe that this is intentional. The connection there to missions is that our approach to constructing anything needs to be tempered by a humble reality that recognizes the vast, vast gap that exists between us and God. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it, it is true. I, I love how you're highlighting this fact that because God is so big and expansive, we should have a big, expansive mm-hmm. view of the world and approach to mm-hmm. the world. And really, humanity is that constant growth of realizing that everything is bigger than Mm -hmm. we first thought it was, right? When we're infants, when we're babies, our world is very small. Mm -hmm. It centers around maybe our home, um, the the few feet around our parents, right? right? That's our world. And as we get older and older, our world gets bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And we realize there is more out there. And hopefully, at a certain point, we realize that we are not the center Mm -hmm. of the world, that that God is actually the center yeah. of the world. And yet that that is a Herculean shift that, that is difficult for us because our instinct is to keep the world small mm-hmm. and controllable by us. And you see that desire here. They're trying to control their world, right? There was a flood that came that they recognized that they had no control mm-hmm. over. And it scares them to death. They experience something that they, that makes them realize how small they are. And instead of turning to a God who is bigger than all of it, they turn and try to make the world small again mm. by gathering all the people together and building this mm. tower that they think will save them. Yeah. And not only will, will it save them, but the rationale for the creation of the, both the city and the tower is giving right, given right there in Genesis 11. Let us make a name for ourselves. Mm. So it's not just that we want to keep the, the, the world small, as you're saying, but it's also, I love that second point that you're, that you're pushing us and prodding us to, that we want to keep uh, our world controllable. Mm. And I think that needs to occur, as you're, as you're saying, um, when not only when you're when you're a baby, but when you when you're growing up, um, what we have is we have we need to have a world that comes with a very clear and concise rules to follow. Mm. Rules that are going to help us not only make sense of the world, but that are going to help us stay safe. Mm. Now, as as you start getting older, the hope is that those rules are replaced by certain principles, certain ideas, certain cosmologies that allow you to say, hey, the whole point isn't keeping me safe. The whole point is creating these connections that need to exist both with other people and with God. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a... That's difficult because safety, safety is an instinct mm-hmm. for us, right? Um, I remember, I don't remember what book it is, but Erwin McManus, a, a pastor in LA, he writes a story about his son and how his son came back from a first overnight camping trip that he took with friends. And at the trip, they told um, ghost stories and he came back so scared, mm. right? And so mm. he came into the room and... Um, he's coming into the room to tuck his son in and his son says, daddy, are there really such things like Mm. evil, evil angels and evil spirits? Mm -hmm. And you know, what is he supposed to say to his little boy? Like, yes, there are evil things in the world and they're all around us and they're trying to kill us. Good night. Like, what is he going to (laughs) say? But you know, he has to tell the truth. So he says, yes, yes, there are, but there are, there's also God and Mm. there are angels that are protecting us. And so his son says, Daddy, will you pray that God will keep me safe? Mm. 
And in that moment, and I, as a parent, would have been happy to pray that prayer. But in that moment, he recognizes an opportunity to reframe his son's thinking of the world. And so he says, well, Seth, how about instead I pray that instead of God keeping you safe, that God will make you really, really dangerous. So dangerous that all the evil angels run in fear. Mm. He says, Daddy, yeah, do that. I mean, what a powerful way of rethinking the world, right. right? Because these moments can make us so afraid that we shrink back. But you're saying that instead of shrinking back, we should have that boldness and confidence that comes from a connection with God to reach out and be connected mm -hmm. to others. Mm -hmm. Don't let the fear of the unknown keep us from stepping into it. Yeah. And what I think is required, and um, I... I think this is what, what fails um, the builders of this tower in the city is mat the, the maturity that comes with realizing that my world is going to be small mm -hmm. and within the grand scheme of things, I am pretty small. And there is, I think, something that happens. Uh, as I was reading these this this chapter, two examples came in, came into my mind. The first one is most cultures around in, around the world that are not kind of in the developed nations have uh, these uh, rites of passage. Mm -hmm. um, you go through a ceremony mm -hmm. that represents this rite of passage, and they're really important. And I think we've lost that. Mm -hmm. Um, in our in our in the particular society that we live in, because our society is one that is devoid and uh, that is right starved. So we don't have that many rites and rituals anymore. We're ritualistically starved. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that happens with that is these very clear moments that are going to where where you're going to be asked to expand your view of the world. Um, to say, hey, it's no longer uh, the feet of your parents. Your world is going to be bigger. Those opportunities are missed. Mm -hmm. Eastern cultures, I think, do do this a little better. And I, I read this really fascinating story uh, about Japan. Mm -hmm. And so in Japan, uh, after World War II, Japanese society realized that the soldiers that were coming back home needed to be reintegrated into society in some way. Mm. And up until that moment, their whole identity was, was built uh, by being loyal soldiers. Mm. Uh, that's what their state needed. That's what their country needed. And so when they got back to their towns, they did this, this ritual, this rite of passage that said, we want first to acknowledge and thank and affirm you and all that you've done for your country. Mm. But we also want to point out that what is now needed is something else. Mm. And it was this combination of affirmation, mm. which it's and reframing, mm. uh, which is what your story did. And I think when we're talking about missions in a post-postmodern society, which is the one we live in now, where it seems like the state of society is heavily, heavily interconnected. We might not have one language, one uh, lingua franca, but we do have one way of communicating and connecting that has made uh, this world uh, infinitely smaller is there needs to be a reframing. There needs to be, uh, to those of us who share Jesus, an affirmation uh, that what is now needed is something different as we engage a interconnected world. And that's going to take, as you're mentioning, some reframing. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's powerful. That the things and the methods and the ways that we communicated the gospel in the past may not be as mm. effective and powerful now. That doesn't negate the power and effectiveness of the gospel because that message is still powerful. Mm -hmm. But because we live in an interconnected world, in a different world, society has changed. We also have to adapt the way that we communicate mm -hmm. and reframe the way we think about mission. Absolutely. And it doesn't negate, and not only does it not negate 
the power of the of the message of the gospel. It doesn't negate the efforts that we that we did before, yeah. even if they were with brick and tar. They were valid efforts. They gave us meaning and they kept us safe. The question is, are we courageous enough now to reframe, uh, to reframe? And I think the first step in in this uh, attempt at reframing is to recognize how small we are. Um, that enamored as we are and committed as we are to Adventism, when uh, when we're talking about the way we understand God, God is more than. Um, it doesn't mean God isn't Adventism or fundamental beliefs, or if you want to get it, go even bigger, Scripture, or if you want to go even bigger, the person of Jesus. Those things are God. But I love how the early church used to frame it. God is more than, but not, none other than Jesus Christ. Mm. And so I think it's it's really important to know that even our best attempts at a, at figuring out how we share these this God need to be tempered by a lot of humility. Wow. Wow. So then how do we keep from keeping our world smaller? How do we let go control? How do we not make the mistake that these people in the Tower of Babel did mm. of trying to take the place of God mm -hmm. and instead build with stone instead of brick? How, mm. do, how do we do that? Yeah, I think that is, that is the $30 million question mm. uh, because the the ultimate, the way we do things is we look at the paradigms we have and we attempt as best we can. And we've talked about this, right? We've talked about the difference, uh, about different uh, challenges sometimes that we face. And we talked about the problem with adaptive challenges vis-a-vis -vis technical challenges is adaptive challenges force us to let go of all the paradigms and kind of step in uh, step into to the void, as it were, yeah. and that is really scary to do because we we don't have reading. Now you know we love to read here, mm -hmm. but reading books on how to mesh and interconnect with a post postmodern digital world that has become smaller, the answer is not going to be there. Mm -hmm. The answer is not going to be in the last Barna statistic. The answer is not going to be in uh, the last excerpt on social anthropology or digital technology. The answer, is, the answer isn't out there. We are then entrusted by God to start crafting uh, the answer. And so I think the way that that happens is we, we continue to be engaged and to engage ourselves in conversations and in moments and in places that make us uncomfortable. Um, and then we realize that that discomfort mm. is is not only important; it's necessary to 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 develop this this new uh, nuanced approach. Wow, wow, yeah. So by 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 experiencing new ways of doing things, it expands our viewpoints and allows us then to. So really the goal is to become more expansive. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do that, we need to encounter more, mm -hmm. experience more, try more different things. And that should help to broaden that view, to step into those spaces that are unknown. So we only get to know the unknown if we step into the unknown. Right. And that's what's scary about it. And I think, you know, I was thinking about cartography this week because, I mean, who doesn't think about cartography as amusing? Um, but that's how they wrote. That's how they. That's how they used to draw maps. They would follow the map until the map ended, and then they would say, "Hmm, it looks like there's more ocean here. We're gonna keep going." And then uh, the map gets a little more expansive. And I think if that is the way that uh, any other uh, approach at getting to know the world uh, works, then why doesn't, why don't we take that same 
thirst for discovery and curiosity into our approach to to sharing uh, who God is and what God's about. Wow. I think it's because, I mean, to expand on your metaphor, I think it's because instead of having an explorer mentality, we have a settler mm-hmm. mentality, right? We're all about building where we mm-hmm. are rather than continuing to explore mm-hmm. new worlds, right? To borrow a phrase from Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to boldly go to, where, where no, one, <laughs> where no man has gone before. <laughs> yes. So instead of doing that, we are all about colonizing mm-hmm. and settling. And that's actually what you see here, right? Come on, Joey. <laughs> they stopped exploring. Mm-hmm. And then God says, no, it's time to explore mm-hmm. some more. And so he confuses their rela- language, scatters them, and then they have to spread mm-hmm. out and realize the bigger the world is bigger than their mm-hmm. city. It's bigger than their tower. And they have. And it sounds like what you're saying is we're in that moment again, that it's time for us to move from a settler mentality where we're all about just rigidly defining and redefining and just re, re just strengthening the foundations of where we have already landed instead of just doing that looking forward to where is God leading us mm-hmm. next where is the next area that God wants to explore and that that really was the adventist movement in the beginning right that was why they wanted to call it a movement and not an organization or an institution. Now, it became an institution eventually, but hopefully we can retain some of those movement roots because movements need to move. That's, that's, uh, that, I think that's a, great, that's a great use of language. Uh, the problem when movements are moving is it becomes really, really difficult to identify who's part of the movement and who's not part of the movement. And so I think we, we we create settlements because we want to make sure that we're able to identify those who are in the settlement and those who are outside of the settlement. And that's not all bad. I, I know that sometimes it, it sounds like we're coming um, with this doom and gloom message of, hey, we need to stop doing what we're doing now. We need to shift because the world is shifting. And that's partly what we're saying. But like we, I, I think, like we said before, to have bound, to have borders that define who's in and who's out is extremely important for your security and your protection. Mm. And so there, there is meaning to that, and there is meaning in that. Uh, the danger is sometimes uh, when when you when you explore when when you shift I should say the settler approach with very clearly defined forts and uh, guarded positions to the explorer uh, mindset where you're really really exposed uh, it's it's a dangerous place to be mm. and so I think at this point the question isn't what approach is what approach is better than the other i think the the question that we need to start asking at least we're talking about missions so in our missiology is how how risk ready are we at this time in both our history and in in the history of the world uh to to go out and and be exposed and realize that as we are exploring, we're, it's going to become very difficult to see who and to identify who is one of us, who is part of our tribe and who isn't. Yeah. That's an instinct that you see in the New Testament, um, which is why they struggled with the coming of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Because they were so concerned about who was in and who was mm-hmm. out. Um, the question that Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor, is exactly that question, right? Who is Who are the people that I need to care about? Because Jesus says, love the, the two greatest commandments mm-hmm. are love God and love your neighbor, right? And so he needs he's asking, who is it that I really need to care about? Who's really in? And Jesus tells a paradigm-shifting uh, parable about the Good Samaritan, a, Samarit- a person who all of them would have defined as being out, mm-hmm caring for someone who's in and then ask the question, who was a neighbor? Who's the neighbor of that man? Mm. And it just shatters what their perspective is. Mm. And then Jesus does that again with the passage that 
you know, that uh, that is referred to in the, the lesson, right? Yeah. Where Jesus sends them out. He continues, acts as that movement, the story of the movement that starts very small inside one room, right? They're all contained in one room in Jerusalem. And then through persecution, through inspiration, through the through the calling of Paul, this this movement spreads all across the Roman Empire. I mean, that's that's the story of Acts, yeah. right? And when the book of Acts ends, it's like they're knocking on the door of Spain, mm-hmm. right? What's next? Where is God leading us next? And yet somehow it almost feels like we feel like we have now spread far enough and we need we want to, again, retreat and settle again. And maybe like you're saying, God is calling us to be explorers like Paul. Yeah. Once again. And that that's gonna and I I, I wanna I wanna I wanna continue driving this point home because it you can I think you can tell uh that I'm quite reticent because I, I haven't and I've been all whole week I've been trying to see if I could if I could get to a place where I had kind of three bullet points that I could tell you. Okay, this is this is how you approach missions uh, in a way that is driven by humility and by curiosity and by a desire to be impacted, not just to impact the world, but to be impacted by the world. But that, quite honestly, I, I don't have that. There are a lot of dangers there um, because the reality is we all, I think, uh, with, within, within our own movement, would agree that the commandment of the great, uh, the great commandment that God has for us, our great commission, is to go and love anyone, that everyone is our neighbor. But it's very different uh, to go out and love someone and to care for them and to, and to be triumphalistic and sometimes even paternalistic. Hey, uh, person in need, we have everything you need, and we're going to help mm. you, and we're going to bind you up, and we're going to take you to the inn, and we'll even pay the innkeeper uh, to keep you uh, to keep you healthy and keep you uh, keep you on the road to recovery. That's one thing. It's very different, though, than to return to the inn and to continue having conversations with this man that you found on the road. Notice that it's not the the person who was in that did this, it's the Samaritan. The world impacted the Jew, not the other way around. Yeah. And so I think that's a nuance that is often that is often missed. We think in the story of the great Samar- of, of the good Samaritan that we're the good Samaritan. We're not. We're the Jew. The Good Samaritan is the world out there. And the question becomes, are we not just are we willing to not just go out and impact the world, but are we courageous enough and firm enough in the things that we believe that we will to allow the world to impact us? And I think that's where the big debate in Adventism is, because you have some people that say, absolutely. The only way to meaningfully transform the world is to be impacted by the world. Mm. And there's other people that say, no, no, no. The ultimate purpose is to have very clearly defined boundaries and borders, again, for our safety. And so we need to make sure that we go out into the world, but that we don't become of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the two pictures that when it comes to how we are to relate to the world and how far out of our comfort zone we need to be pushed that's still what what, even this morning i'm wrestling with yeah yeah i that's that's so i love how you laid that out so clearly and it it seems like for jesus it's not an either or more like a both and Mm -hmm. right that there is there is an indication that we are to be um, in the world and even affected by the world because not not affected by the world as in um, become like the sinful world, mm-hmm. but affected by the world in that God is already working, like you said last week, God is already working in places and people that we don't expect. Right. So if God is working in them, that means that we should allow 
what God is doing in them to also change the way that we that we relate to mm -hmm. them, right? So, so that again is the paradigm, like you said, there's the, that's the paradigm shifting part of that story is because the hero is the person you don't expect, mm -hmm. right? The hero of the story is the Samaritan. Hero of the story is the outsider. He's the one who is more God-like. He's the one who is following the commandments of love that you're asking about. It's not the priest. It's not the Jewish Levite. It's not the Jewish man who's laying on the road. He's, he's just like a spectator in this whole thing, right? It is the Samaritan, the person who is outside, that God is working in and showing love to mm. the person on the inside. Mm. So when, when that happens to us, when we experience God's movement in places and in people we don't expect, how will we respond? Will we turn away and say, this is outside of our frame of reference, so we can't handle that, so that must not be God? Or do we have the openness, like it seems like Jesus is urging us to, have the openness to listen and relate and try to understand what God is doing in mm -hmm. their lives and be changed by it. And it seems like, at least in the Gospels, that the, the invitation and the call of Christ is to move way, way beyond what you're comfortable with. And there's two parables that come to mind. So they ask Jesus, what is the kingdom like? What is the, what is the kingdom like? And Jesus answers with these two really interesting stories. He says, the, king, the kingdom is like leaven, and the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Mm. And we misread, misread those parables all the time because we think that the parables are about growth, right? Leaven, because the bread's gonna, gonna grow and it's gonna be fantastic. And mustard seed, because it, the kingdom's gonna start, the message is gonna start really small and then it's going to expand. That's not what the stories are about. The stories are about how superficial and sometimes superfluous the divisions that we make between sacred and profane are. Mm -hmm. Because for, because for Jesus, everything belongs to Jesus. There are no compartments. So if you think about what leaven represents in, in, in scripture, leaven represents the world, the impure, the profane, the polluted world. And here, and so the Jews would eat unleavened bread during, uh, during the Day of Atonement. Where here Jesus is saying, hey, we're going to mix leaven into unleavened bread feverishly because everything belongs to God. And I think sometimes, and I'm going to get on my preaching pulpit here for a while, folks, sometimes we are so concerned with creating this line between sacred and profane that we for, that we fail to realize that God's work is occurring some in the polluted profane world as well. Mm. And uh, so that's story number one. Story number two, he says, is mm. it's a mustard seed. Now, Jewish rabbis used to give you uh, theological treatises on everything. And there was one tree that you could not plant in a Jewish garden, a shrub. And that was a mustard shrub. Because Jews, if you, if you read Levitical law, they're very big about creating demarcation, right? They don't want any cross-pollinization of, uh, of species of fruit or trees. It's very important to have order and demarcation. The problem with the mustard seed, the problem with, the, with that shrub, is it's going to go everywhere. It's going to impact everything. It's going to change the very ecosystem of your garden. And so the Jewish rabbis would say, yeah, a good Jew doesn't plant mustard seed. And so I find it really fascinating that Jesus takes two images uh, where that are very closely linked to that which they thought was the profane and polluted world and say the kingdom of heavens is the convergence between the people of God and this world uh, that uh, where I am working and the invitation is don't be so enamored with your own view wow. of the gospel that you miss kingdom happening in the profane and polluted world. Don't be so enamored with your view of the gospel that you forget to see that the neighbor, the true neighbor, is the Samaritan. Wow. Wow. 
that's a fascinating connection you're making between um, these parables and the fact that the objects that Jesus uses in these parables were normally thought of as being that things that are profane, right? Um, and yet God, Jesus uses them as an example of the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven grows in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. places. And that shouldn't surprise us because as Paul said in Ephesians, we all were profane, polluted mm. people. All of us are. And God grew in us. Mm. So if God grew in us, what keeps him from growing in others? Mm. So that meant, well, I don't know about you, but I am way outside of my comfort zone. And thankfully, we are way uh, out of time. So Joey, pray with us as we continue to strive to find kingdom wherever kingdom may be happening, whether it's on the side of the road with a Samaritan, in a bakery shop with a woman with a woman needing bread, or in a garden as mustard seed shrubs take over the whole of creation. Mm. Wow. Our dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for being that God of the Advent, the God who comes to us. You don't stay in your sacred city surrounded by walls and protected from pollution. No, you stepped into a profane, polluted world so that we had the opportunity to have the kingdom of heaven grow in our hearts. Lord, and you are still doing that work today in places that we don't expect. So help us to be open to the work you're doing everywhere, even in people that we don't expect, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So voyagers of the holy, explorers on a trek towards sanctification, may you be courageous enough to find God and kingdom wherever it may be happening. Until next week. Mm -hmm.